to me, someone who's done federal criminal defense computer crimes in 10 years, that is the scariest damn thing in this case. Universal criminal jurisdiction over the internet solely at the sole discretion of the prosecutor without anybody even having any kind of notice or anything. I mean, he's in Sweden this entire damn time. The last thing he's thinking is, I'm going to get arrested in Los Angeles. But constitutionally, I think that's just wrong. And we've won on that issue before. You cannot abrogate or erase the United States Constitution um, in this matter. And that's what they're trying to do. It's scary and it's contemptuous. And they're accusing Roman of being the ones, of the one who's breaking the rules, but they're the ones breaking the rules. They're the only ones making money. They're the ones with the profit incentive and the fame incentive and the career incentive. They're placing profits over justice. Today, I am pleased to have two lawyers, Tor Eklund and Michael Hazard. I met them at a recent Bitcoin meetup in Zurich, Switzerland. Their story was so interesting that I felt it should be shared with as large an audience as possible. A note for those listening to this on the podcast, if you watch this on YouTube, I show the slides that were presented at this presentation in Zurich. So let me read to you the introduction to their presentation at the Bitcoin meetup in Zurich. The United States wrongfully accuses Swedish citizen Roman Sterlingoff of administrating the crypto mixer Bitcoin Fog and laundering $330 million of criminal proceeds through it over the course of a decade. But there isn't a single piece of evidence that Roman ever operated Bitcoin Fog. He was merely an innocent user of the service securing his private interest. Nothing about this case adds up except the profit motives of the investigators and companies involved. Roman faces 50 years to life in prison based on speculative, uncorroborated blockchain forensics conducted at desk thousands of miles away from Sweden. Denied bail, he has languished in jail for over two years awaiting his September 9, 2023 trial. Here, Roman's lawyers dissect this Kafkaesque nightmare and explain why everyone in the crypto community should be concerned about this American prosecution gone awry. So today I have Tor Eklund and Michael Hazard. Let me read you a quick introduction of both of these gentlemen, these lawyers. Tor Eklund is best known for representing hackers and white-collar defendants in federal criminal court and on appeal. Tor also counsels businesses and individuals under investigation by the United States Department of Justice and those seeking counseling on the compliance with U.S. computer law. Michael Hazard is a member of the Computer Law and Federal Trials Practice Group at the Brooklyn offices at Tor Eklund PLLC. His practice focuses on computer law and advising clients in matters related to federal litigation, federal agency investigations and enforcement actions, and federal criminal trials. Michael regularly appears in federal courts across the United States on behalf of individuals accused of the federal computer, of federal computer crimes. So good afternoon, Tor. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us. And good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. So, would you like maybe to start off by telling listeners who Roman uh, Sterling Goff is, what he's accused of, a little bit of the background story, and then how you got involved with this? Yeah, sure. Um, Roman Sterling Goff is a Swedish-Russian citizen who, in 2003, when he's 14 years old, 
moves from Russia to Scott, uh, to not Gothenburg. Where's it, Mike? It's, uh, Young Koping. Young Koping, Sweden, with his mother, leaving his father behind in Russia. And he's lived in Sweden ever since. Um, around 2009, 2010, he becomes an early adopter of Bitcoin. Um, and in 2011, he starts going to Bitcoin meetups, like the one we met at, and the ones that are just, they, you know, had all over Europe since, and all around the world since this time. And he, people ask him to make wallets and he sells them Bitcoin for a small commission. And as he's doing that, he accumulates a lot of Bitcoin because, you know, he sells it, does wallets. Um, at the same time, he's working for a Swedish advertising company that does print and digital marketing. And he works on the digital side and he registers tons of names for, you know, websites and all sorts of stuff. Um, and, um, Mike, you want to keep, you want to take it from 2011? Yeah. Beginning in 2011, Bitcoin is worth 30 cents per Bitcoin. So you can tell just if you know anything about Bitcoin, what kind of appreciation Roman, uh, would have had on the Bitcoin that he was accumulating in 2011, because the price for Bitcoin at that time was 30 cents per Bitcoin. So 2011 was a big year for Bitcoin. It was also the year that, uh, Mark Carpilis is a, a character involved in this prosecution acquires Mt. Gox. Uh, you might be familiar with Mt. Gox from the hack that they suffered in 2014. And that hack, uh, uh is significant to this case as well. For those of you who don't know what Mt. Gox is. It's one of the first Bitcoin exchanges that comes into being and it emerges from a plat, a trading card platform that was Magic the Game online exchange. Magic the Gathering online exchange. They would have, uh, people trading Magic the Gathering cards on this online exchange. And after a while, people started to discuss and trade Bitcoin on that platform. Eventually, Mt. Gox uh, rebranded itself to be one of the first Bitcoin exchanges. And Roman, as an early adopter, gets uh, a Mt. Gox account in his own name. And KYC, he had his IDs logged in on it. He's actually one of the, the what is it, the creditors in the Mt. Gox bankruptcy, but he's been- Still here. waiting for a payout. He's been in jail, so he can't, uh, he's having trouble getting information on it. Um, so Mark Kapilis is the owner of Mt. Gox at this point in time, and Mt. Gox get ha- gets hacked for, how much again, Mike? Like- like that was in 2014, and it was a total of around uh, 850,000 Bitcoin. Which is a huge chunk of money. And so another character in this case comes in in 2014, and that's or actually a couple, Michael Groninger and Jonathan Levin, who launch the main forensic investigator in this case, everyone's favorite, Chainalysis, in 2014, working on this Mt. Gox um, bankruptcy. And the Mt. Gox data, is a key component in this case because in going back to 2011, the government's like key piece of quote unquote evidence is they claim that Roman registered the domain name for the Bitcoin blog.com clarinet site, not the onion site where the actual mixer is, just the normal site on the internet that anybody can access with their browser. They don't say he actually designed the website, ran the website, or anything. They say that he registered the domain name. And they say he did it with an email that when you subpoena Hotmail, you actually find out it belongs to a guy named Andrew White. 
but the government's saying, oh, you know, your IP address matches the IP address used by this email. You know, the IP address that you used for your email matches this guy's IP address. Therefore, you're the same fucking person, which is you know, a lot ridiculous because, you know, VPN, proxy service, all that crap. Um, but that IP address match comes from the Mt. Gox data. And Mike, why don't you tell them about the integrity of the Mt. Gox data? So in 2014, after hearing about the hack at Mt. Gox, Michael Groninger reaches out to the trustees in Japan who are responsible for the Mt. Gox bankruptcy. He goes over to Japan and speaks with Mark Karpilis and says, Hey, I want to try to trace the transactions on the, on the public ledger, public blockchain ledger and try to determine who took these 850,000 bitcoins from the Mt. Gox platform. Mark Tarpila says, this is fantastic. Maybe you can help us out. It gives them a hard drive of all the data that Mt. Gox had. Now, Michael, after taking a look at it, Michael Groninger goes back to Mark Tarpila and says, hey, you know, this data is corrupted. There's missing transaction hashes. Some of the wallet IDs don't have enough digits. I can't do anything with this data. Do you have any, any backups? Mark Tarpila says, no, because when the hack happened at Mt. Gox, not only was the, were the digital files of everything from Mt. Gox uh, corrupted, but also they suffered a physical hack at their servers in Massachusetts. Uh, accordingly, uh, the data is, is insufficient for Michael Groninger to be able to trace the, the, uh, the hack of Bitcoins and be able to find them. So Michael Groninger continues with this project and ultimately his tracing efforts lead to the creation of a company called Chainalysis 8, which is registered in Delaware the following year in 2015. Now, the Mt. Gox data is important because the government is relying upon the Mt. Gox data to match the IP address between Roman's logins into his Mt. Gox account and the IP address that was reportedly used and allegedly used to register the ClearNet site, www.bitcoinfog.com, uh, with highhosting.net. Now, I think at this time, it's important to mention that it's not illegal to register a ClearNet site. This BitcoinFog.com website was just a clearnet site that had a link to the Onion site uh, upon which the Bitcoin Fog mixing service operated on the Tor network. And the government makes no mention of the re-registration of this clearnet site, which I think was in like, what, 2014, 2015. And I think there was another one in 2016, uh, which... You know, they they just ignore so much stuff in this case, but that's their primary piece of evidence that they're claiming shows that Roman operated Bitcoin fog for a decade and laundered $330 million, right? Let's talk about what there isn't in that they, they haven't found it in, in, in that like seven years. First, they put him under surveillance in 2017 when he's in Miami with his girlfriend. They put him under physical surveillance, taking photos, all that stuff. They put him under wiretap, and they put him under what's called a pen trap, which tracks all his signal, internet traffic. Mm -hmm. What did they find from that? Absolutely nothing that he's operating Bitcoin fog. You're not going to see a single, there isn't a single piece of evidence in everything that the government has given us that shows Roman operating Bitcoin fog, talking about, you know, Bitcoin fog. He was a user of Bitcoin fog for privacy and security reasons. And he openly admits that. And he was transferring his Bitcoin to a, a KYC Kraken account in his own name, 
that he'd put like photo ID down for. Not the which, which no sophisticated cyber criminal, as the government alleges he is, would do. You know, um, so they also, when they arrest him at the airport, they finally decide in uh, 2021. Um, and they catch him with like his laptops, like two or three laptops, three terabytes of hard drives, a bag he keeps of all the thumb drives he's ever had, um, his handwritten notes with his backup codes, his personal diary. I think they get access to his Google Drive, his Gmail, you know, everything for like 10 years. They have all of his backup codes for all of his crypto accounts. His Raspberry Pis, his cell phones, like everything, because he's traveling to go. At this point uh, in 2021, uh, crypto's vol so volatile. He hasn't, you know, he's tried to make money. Like in 2014, he quits his job because crypto, Bitcoin appreciates, right? Goes to the ceiling and he, that's when he starts sending the money to his Kraken account. You can see him like living off of it. The government says that those are the royalty payments, you know, the service fees from uh, Bitcoin Fog's operation, which doesn't add up because he only and probably had around $2 million and he should have hundreds of millions of dollars if he was operating Bitcoin Fog. Now, the government says this because they approached the entire investigation with uh, a taint of confirmation bias. One of the earliest pieces of evidence that they uh, identified in this investigation is the IP address match between the logins on the Mt. Gox records for his PlasmaPlasmaDivision.com Mt. Gox account and the IP address used to register BitcoinFog.com, the ClearNet site, which is completely legal. So at that point, when once the government has that IP address match, and it might be an IP address match in the United States is not personally identifiable information. There are many reasons an IP address could match. Somebody could be spoofing your IP, you could be sharing a VPN, or somebody could simply be at your house using your Wi-Fi. But once the government has its IP address match, their entire investigation becomes, how do we prove that Roman Sterlingog created and operated Bitcoin Fog instead of an investigation into who operates Bitcoin Fog? So this confirmation bias completely taints the investigation out of the gate. Now, this is important because when we get down to the... Uh, when we're looking at the uh, other records in the case, such as the Kraken accounts that Tor just mentioned, you can see the government trying to fit their uh, confirmation bias that Roman Sterling was operating a Bitcoin file into the facts, and they're just not congruent whatsoever. A cursory analysis of the Kraken account clearly shows that in 2014, after creating the Kraken account, Roman deposited uh, deposited uh, crypto, and he did that a couple of times at the beginning. You can see deposit, 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 deposit. Those deposits are coming from Bitcoin Fog because he used it as a user. And the government is misidentifying that as the royalty payments for the service fee that Bitcoin Fog uh, uh, levied upon people who use their service. Now, when you look at the Kraken account, you can then see a switch in, in behavior from uh, deposits into the account to withdrawals. He starts living off of the appreciation that his crypto and Bitcoin investments has had since 2011 when he got into it. You can see him living off the gains. When his, uh, uh, the total amount in his cracking account starts to get a little lower, you can see him getting worried that he's not going to, you know, that it's going to run out. And so he starts trading it. And you can see in this period of time in the cracking accounts, trade, 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 withdrawal, withdrawal, trade, very few deposits, almost all withdrawals and, and, uh, trades. And then, you can see him slowing down on withdrawals. And this is at the point in time when he decided, Hey, look, I got to get a, I got to get a more stable job. I got to get a real job that will 
allowed me to generate income rather than living off of appreciation of the Bitcoin. So he tries a couple of things. First, he opens up a music studio in Gothenburg, Sweden. Uh, that goes for a little bit, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really take off. Then he creates a VPN company called To The Moon Limited. Uh, and he has these servers in, and where's Taurus Romania, right? Yeah, it's got a couple yeah. of Romanian servers. And this is another moment in the case out of uh, a few moments in the case where you can see the government getting excited, thinking that they're finally going to get some kind of evidence that this guy operates Bitcoin Fog. So Roman starts this VPN service that Michael mentions, VPN uh, to the moon. And he and Roman gets these Romanian servers. And, you know, this business doesn't go anywhere, right? Um, it's not really profitable. But the government, you can see, is convinced that these are the Bitcoin Fog servers. So they go and they seize them and they get all these like, you know, do fancy documents with Romania. And you know what they find on them of evidence of Roman Sterling off operating Bitcoin fog for 10 years and money laundering $330 million. Nothing. Just like on the computers and the storage devices and the handwritten notes they seized from him at the airport. Nothing. Just like when they put him under physical surveillance and, you know, wiretap and pen traps when he was in Miami. Nothing. Just like. There's not a single damn piece of evidence in 10 years except this crappy, like speculative tracing that they're doing uh, of legal transactions. It's legal to register a domain name, even if he did do it, which I, we think he's like, they're totally off on the trace, right? Because we're using all these heuristic um, guessing. I mean, that's it. I, it's bizarre. Like one thing that they say when they're, they're linking him, um, you know, to the DNS registration with this email address that they're using an alleged IP address match to get is also that that same, um, uh, email IP address combination, um, registered the Bitcoin talk, um, for, um, uh, chat name for Mike. What's the name for me, please? Akimashiti means happy new year in Japanese. In Japanese. <laughs> now note there that Mark Capellas and Mount Gox are in Japan at this time. And so that is, that person is the found, claims to be the founder of Bitcoin Fog and talks about running Bitcoin Fog and having logs for a week and then purging them, having staff of all the difficulties of maintaining it and generally describing how it's a complicated organization, right? There's not a trace of any of that on anything that roman has and like to me that's astounding as someone who's done computer crimes for you know law defending people for 10 years i've never known somebody who did something to be so fucking good that they can wipe every single trace of it from all of their digital devices their entire life to the point where there's not a single eyewitness or even one bit yeah. Uh, the targeting of Roman becomes quite clear when you take a look at how they allege the transactions to fund the BitcoinFlog.com clearnet site in, in their complaint. So it, it starts from highhosting.net was a company that hosted the clearnet site. It was paid for with a Liberty Reserve account registered in the name of Shoreman at Hotmail.com. Now this Shoreman at Hotmail.com email address is the one associated with the Akimashati Omadeku Bitcoin talk form, uh, account. It's the one associated with everything related to the operation of Bitcoin fog. And the government tries very, very hard to tie this email to Roman. But their argument just simply doesn't hold water. You see, Liberty Reserve was a Costa Rican bank 
that would uh, easily trade Bitcoin for U.S. dollars. And that was shut down by the U.S. government. All the records were seized, which is how the government has these records. All the records used in this case, as far as we know, come from government seizures because the government seized the Mt. Gox records, which we already think are inauthentic, and they seized the Liberty Reserve records from Costa Rica. So going to highhosting.com, it was paid for by uh, Shorman at Hotmail.com Liberty Reserve account. Before that, they traced the funds through ARM exchange. Before that, they alleged that the funds were sent from uh, Kobasa99 at Rambler.ru, Mt. Gox account. And prior to that, they say that they came from an NFS9000 at Hotmail.com uh, Mt. Gox account. Now, this is where it gets interesting because the government alleges that the funding, in, the funds in NFS9000 at Hotmail.com's Mt. Gox account came from Roman's KYC Mt. Gox account uh, in the name of Plasma at PlasmaDivision.com. Now, even in the criminal complaint, they, have, they, they miss a piece here. And the arrows between the Romans account and the NFS 9000 account allegedly go through an account that they identify with a piggy bank with a question mark on it. So you can see that the government has no tie to Romans on this front. And after we've done the cursory analysis of the tracing on this, we believe that the NFS 9000 account was funded by one of potentially several different sources that were not Roman. Uh, this is an example of how chain analysis clustering heuristics in an effort to trace uh, Bitcoin transaction fails um, and, and how it leads to incarceration of innocent people. Yeah, you show well how they're prosecuting him on data that's very tenuous. There's two other things that I find very interesting. One is um, there's sort of the cast of characters. So the cast of characters involved, okay, there's Mark Capellas. The fellow who started chain analysis, Michael Groninger and Jonathan Levin. And so if you can explain a little bit why they're so motivated to prosecute a case. Plus, there's another character who you haven't yet mentioned, uh, Catherine Pelker, who's also... Catherine Pelker and Aaron Bias are two characters. And finally, uh, when you speak about Catherine Pelker, because she was uh, works at the Department of Justice, uh, could you tell us whether the Department of Justice has uh, jurisdiction in, in Romania when they went and seized the... Uh, the servers over there. So Catherine Pelker is a very interesting character in this prosecution. She begins the case uh, working at the FBI Russia desk in the National Security Division in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. At this point in her career, she's an FBI analyst. And she appears to be the person who initiates the investigation into Bitcoin fog across the FBI. She sends an uh, intelligence note through the FBI intranet identifying Bitcoin fog as a national security issue and, and uh, encouraging people to investigate it from the agency. Now, her career takes her on through several steps, and it appears that this case follows her throughout her career. After a couple of years at the FBI, she attends law school in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown Law. Now, it appears that the, the, the case transfers to D.C. around this time from, from Philadelphia. She then graduates from law school, gets admitted to the bar, and gets a job as a prosecutor at the District of Columbia, the uh, district court for the District of Columbia, which is, not a, which is not an easy job to get. The case follows her throughout her career. Now she's the lead prosecutor on this case. Now, it's very interesting because in the United States, under the Sixth Amendment, defendants have a constitutional right to confront their accusers. 
In her capacity as an FBI analyst who initiated the investigation of Bitcoin fog and originally targeted Roman Sterling of, according to the, according to the alleged IP address maps on their convoluted chain of transactions to host the website. Uh, she is his accuser and we've made a motion to call her because we think that it's uh, unacceptable to have her as both the prosecutor and a material fact witness in the case that may mislead the jury. Uh, based on whether or not she is an advocate or a witness. And this is a big battle that we're having right now. And it's very rare to make a motion to, to get the prosecutor on the stand as a, as a material fact witness, but we contend that Rowan has a constitutional right under the Sixth Amendment to do so. Uh, these other characters that you've mentioned, Aaron Bice is particularly interesting. Tor, would you like to take it on a little bit about Aaron Bice? Yeah, sure. So. Everywhere you turn in this case, there's something crazy going on, whether it's just people ignoring evidence that uh, other people did this or people profiteering. And on the profiteering front, there is an IRS criminal investigator named Aaron Bice, who is intimately involved in this case from the beginning and is intimately involved with chain analysis and uses Chainalysis Reactor to do uh, the, the tracing in this case. But, and this is where it gets interesting, and when I saw this, I was like, what? He starts a private company while he's an IRS CI, and uh, it's called Exigent LLC. And he uses it to investigate this case. I think he gets a government contract. Uh, I, it's very unclear to me because I don't think it's legal or uh, ethical. If it's not legal, it's definitely not ethical. Um, he gets a government contract to investigate this case. And um, he's one of Chainalysis's main contacts at DOJ and, and Treasury at this point. Um, and actually how Chainalysis gets its contract with DOJ is, I, I think, in part through BICE because they build a close relationship with BICE when BICE is at the IRS, which is at Treasury. Catherine Alden-Pelker, who's at the Department of Justice, which is a separate law enforcement division from the IRS, right? It's Treasury DOJ. She's going over and interacting with BICE and using Chainalysis Reactor, right? And this is right when Chainalysis is at, like, you know, no market valuation. They're just starting out. It's 2015, right? And she's going over there and working with Bison using Chainalysis Reactor and they're working on the Bitcoin fog pace, right? Because Pelkers, I think Michael mentioned it, just sent out this intelligence report on the internal internet, intranet. They're decrying this evil mix, mixing entity called Bitcoin fog. So she's over there. She sees Chainalysis Reactor. She goes over to DOJ and convinces DOJ to um, get the contract. Right. But that's a side note. Right. This is how, but this is where Chainalysis builds its relationships and goes from zero dollars in government revenue to a revenue stream of like $330 million. Right. It's this case is part of that. And that's part of the conflict of interest because it's in their interest to find people guilty. They don't make money if their software doesn't catch people. Right. They've got to catch criminals. So last forward to Roman's arrest. When DOJ puts out its press release, right, um, it prominently thanks Exigent. And what the effect of that is, it's not some innocuous thing, right? DOJ has a budget of $42 billion. It's a huge government contractor, 
right? That's something that investors or that, you know, people look at. There's proof of concept. There's no better proof of concept for your law enforcement forensics company than getting thanked in a DOJ press release. Five months later, Chainalysis buys the company. They won't tell us for how much, but it's probably millions of dollars. It's got a revenue stream of now $10 million and Vice goes, you know, is like over there working there, right? A big, big, big cash out, right? Um, Chainalysis itself does something very coy because another reason you, you, well, one of the main reasons you see confirmation bias, I think in this case is, is both the profit motive, you know, age old greed. We all know it, right? And status, right? And where the status comes in is everybody like, at the beginning of this, Catherine Alden Palker's a nobody. Right now, she's one of their star blockchain prosecutors, right? And same thing with the other prosecutors, right? That the, and they're talking to the press the entire time. They they talk to a senior report, reporter for Wired magazine known as Andy Greenberg, and Andy's writing this. I call it a hagiography. This book that just praises, I think, <laughs> rise of the blockchain, black box blockchain surveillance state. And I mean, trades in the dark, the global hunt for the crime lords of cryptocurrency. It came out in, in November of this site. That's just like one corner of this case. Like and what's really, I think, crazy about this case is that everywhere turn, it's like drinking through a fire hose, like conflicts of interest, constitutional issues, just, um, you know, they won't show us the source code. Okay, that's a huge constitutional battle right there. This is a criminal case where you, your source code is accusing our client of a crime that he's facing 50 years to life. You have to show your math, man. And you know, it's not like anybody dragged you. They're like, no, it's proprietary. Here, are you talking about the fourth code from chain analysis? Chain analysis, yeah. Refusing to show it, we subpoenaed it. But, and then they're complaining that they're getting subpoenaed when they voluntarily went into this law enforcement space. And you can see them using this case to build up their credibility with both investors and the federal government. Even before the DOJ was able to make their press release on Roman's uh, arrest, it appears that Jonathan Levin had been talking to Andy Greenberg. And before DOJ was able to get a press release out, which was the next day after Roman's arrest, on the day of Roman's arrest, a uh, Wired article, a uh, Wired rep runs an article by Andy Greenberg in which Jonathan Levin, he was very smooth with saying this, but he said that this arrest of Roman Sterlingov proves that our tracing methodologies work. So well, he didn't say, now that's where he was smooth. He didn't say our, he said it proves this kind of block. Kind, yeah. Work. Yeah. I've been mentioned chain analysis or the fact that chain analysis has been working on this case for six years. Right. Um, and then Mike, tell him what happens shortly after that. Yeah, so shortly after that, after this press release that's trumpeting Roman's arrest, uh, and, and exigent being named in, in the DOJ press release and Chainalysis being identified in the Wired press release, Chainalysis goes and has a, uh, series E, I think a series E private equity funding round, and they raise $150 million in private equity for their company. You know, one of the, one of the through lines in this case is at the beginning of this case, Chainalysis is worth nothing in starting out in 2015. Now, Chainalysis is worth $8.6 billion. Yeah, I think, I think you also mentioned in Zurich, there were a few press releases favoring chain analysis, like every time just before they had another equity raise. So that was always a, 
And yeah, we have a cast of characters who you've shown well. Let me give a slight uh, summary so far that uh, shows sort of collusion and bias, as you, said, as you said. So on the one hand, there's Gunnerberg, a chain analysis, who wants to build his company, and he's taken this case to uh, build his company, and he's building it on very poor data, and he doesn't want to show his source code. There's Catherine Pelker, who was first at the FBI and then goes to law school, Department of Justice, and she wants to make her case and her career on this case as well. There's Andy Rice, who was at the IRS, an investigator at the IRS, and they worked closely with the DOJ, and he at the same time is running his company called Exogen, and he ends up selling for, I forgot, what did you say? They won't tell us. They won't tell us. We've asked for that information. That's where we guess we were guessing millions. Okay. Plus, as you said, we have weak data because you said as well that they admit themselves that the data was flawed. The data from Mount Gox uh, was was weak. They don't admit it themselves. In fact, uh, how we found out about the weak data is, is ridiculous. It was ridiculous because the only time where we found out that the Mount Gox, Mount Gox records were inauthentic was from Andy Greenberg's book. That information was never shared with us by the government. And when we took a close look at Andy Greenberg's book, Traces in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency, we've discovered that there are a whole bunch of pieces of, and moments that the government has failed to turn over documents and information about. So we're in a big uh, battle for subpoenas and Rule 16 information and Brady violations on behalf of the federal government that uh, you know could significantly impact the outcome of this case. Now, there are more people in this cast of characters that uh, we haven't touched on yet. Yuli Lee is one of the original prosecutors on this case, and uh, she ends up getting a job with Chainalysis, uh, presumably for significant salary, to be their head of, uh, of legal and global governance. You have Zia Faruqi, who was also a prosecutor on this case before the current ones, and he's now a magistrate judge in the district where Roman is being tried, and he's made repeated uh, decisions that favor uh, blockchain analysis by private companies and favors chain analysis position. Uh, we've mentioned Andy Greenberg. He was the uh, author, or he is the author of Chases in the Dark, as well as a wide reporter who has been covering this case since the beginning. Now, one thing that's interesting about his book is that it's been optioned for a Hollywood movie by Oscar-winning uh, documentary director Alexander Gibney. So there is a layer as well. Not only do the, the, these, this cast of characters have dollar signs in their eyes, but they also have stars in their eyes. The two arresting officers, Seagrin Gambarine and Matt Price, are treated like rock stars in the Chainalysis world. Chainalysis recently had a conference, and these guys were on stage with all these people listed. And they now have jobs uh, with Binance. And then we have Andrew White, which... All of the evidence that we can see points to this Andrew White character in the Bay Area uh, being the true operator of Bitcoin Fog. Yet every time the government comes across uh, anything that points to something other than Roman, they turn a blind eye to it and look the other way. In fact, we have documents uh, in Discovery in which Aaron Bice, while he's investigating this case, expresses doubt that Roman is the operator of Bitcoin Fog. And writes in the notes that, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to think about that. You know, that's too horrible to think about that. We got the wrong guy. Let's, let's not follow that path, uh, down the direction that the evidence is showing us and ignore that so that we can continue to, uh, operate within our confirmation bias to try to prove that Roman is the operator of Bitcoin's fog. You know, 
the, this whole case is, it's just layered with, with, you know, everybody has stars in their eyes. They have dollar signs in their eyes. They're doing it for profit. They're doing it for their careers. And that's why we named our, our speaking tour in Europe that we just got back from profits over justice, the disturbing Bitcoin prosecution of Roman Sterling of. There's another interesting point that you mentioned at the, at your presentation at the Bitcoin meetup in Zurich, which I thought was interesting, which was he's being charged with a federal crime. And normally a federal crime is tried in the state in which the crime was committed. But in this case, he never lived in the United States and these crimes that he allegedly committed, he would have never committed them in the U.S. So why did we choose? Where is he being prosecuted? Why there? That is a major issue in this case. Um, and it's called venue, which the United States Constitution has um, two venue clauses, and they both say that all federal criminal trials have to be in the state and the district where the crime occurred. And the reason they wrote that is because the American revolutionaries would be arrested in the streets of Philadelphia, and then they would be put on a jury trial in London. And a London jury in 1776 is very different than a Philadelphia jury. Um, and they also wanted the, uh, defendant to have the benefit of, you know, the support of the locality, witnesses and everything. Roman was in Sweden this entire time. He's never set foot in Washington, D.C. He's never done business in Washington, D.C. He doesn't have any friends in Washington, D.C. He doesn't have any family in Washington, D.C. He doesn't have any money in Washington. Isn't any evidence at all of anything happening in Washington, D.C. And the reason, the main reason that this investigation is in Washington, D.C. is it's because Catherine Alden Pelker, when she moves from Philadelphia to go to Georgetown Law School in Washington, D.C., is instrumental in transferring this case to Washington, D.C. Then in 2019, right, IRS agents decide they're going to run some kind of sting or something, and they, they send a message to um, the Bitcoin Fog help desk or whatever, right? Whatever they thought was, you know, their point of contact with Bitcoin Fog was. And their message was essentially, hi, we just sold some Molly and some drugs, and we were wondering if your site's a really great site to mix our drugs on because, you know, we want to launder our drug money, and we really weren't sure which site to use. So we were thinking about using yours to launder our legal drug money. Can we use your mixing site to launder our legal drug money? So then they take some Bitcoin, they mix it, and they put it back in a government account in Washington, D.C. That is their claim to venue in D.C. Where is Roman Sterling off in that equation? And what is criminal about what they did? Because it's not even clear to me that the government money were criminal proceeds. Right, like, but what's scary about, right, is that this would scare everybody to listen to involved with the internet. Everybody, anywhere in the world who's involved with the internet, if that's correct, if what they did there is correct, and that gives them constitutional criminal venue, then any federal prosecutor, any prosecutor in the United States, anywhere in the United States, can log onto a computer do something, interact with your website or send you an email or whatever without you having any idea 
As a matter of fact, in this case, it's not even freaking Roman's site, right? He's got no clue. And then they arrest, come arrest you when you land in the United States thinking like in Roman's case, so oh, I'm going to go to a flight school. I'm going to take some classes or whatever, right? They arrest you. And then you can spend, what has he spent? Two and a half years now? Pre-trial? In jail? Waiting for his trial? Like, that's, that's, like, people don't appreciate how scary that little technicality is. To me, someone who's done federal criminal defense computer crimes in 10 years, that, to me, outside of what they're doing physically to Roman, that is the scariest damn thing in this case. Universal criminal jurisdiction over the internet solely at the sole discretion of the prosecutor without anybody even having any kind of notice or anything that they've got some kind. I mean, he's in Sweden this entire damn time. The last thing he's thinking is I'm going to get arrested in Los Angeles, you know, when I'm going there to, to take, you know, classes. But like, they're so, but so constitutionally, I think that's just wrong. And we've won on that issue before. Um, and like, you can't, like, you cannot abrogate or erase the United States Constitution, um, in this manner. And that's what they're trying to do. And I think it's, it's contemptuous. It's scary and it's contemptuous. They don't take the Constitution seriously in this context. And they're accusing Roman of being the ones, of the one who's breaking the rules, but they're the ones breaking the rules. They're the only ones making money. You know? Like, we're the ones with the profit incentive and the fame incentive and the career incentive. You know, they're really, you know, they're cashing in on this case. And what's disgusting to me about it is like, it, 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 is it's they're placing profits over justice. And they can't, they shouldn't be doing it because they have a higher duty as law enforcement officers. And they just haven't met it. And they're not, you know, I don't think they're like evil per se, but they let this money and this quest for money and this quest for status blind them and be really, really sloppy. And, and I'm sorry, but they've, they've done damage, you know, to Roman's life. This is a young man who's been in jail now two and a half years under really crappy conditions, you know, during COVID. He's and, in a room with 60 other people and in a state facility in Virginia that happens to be owned by two judges, allegedly. Allegedly. And that's where, that's where, yeah, that's where we're hearing. And they're trying to keep us from, they don't, they're, they're trying to restrict our access to him. They do, right? Like, first of all, like just to get to it for us for Brooklyn, it's a six hour drive one way, right? And there and back and with gas and the hotels, you're like two grand every damn time, right? And then the last time we were there, they made up this crap. They actually, um, uh, they said that we were trying to smuggle in cigarettes, which is like, what? Right. And that into now, the prison. yeah, into the prison, which is like, yeah, you can see us. We actually took the cigarettes out and put them in the locker and locked them up before you go in. It's like this total, it's like a really bad lie. But they're, what they're trying to do and what they're doing, uh, constantly in this is they're, they're generating friction and transaction costs. And this is something I don't, I think people who don't, haven't done this kind of stuff, why should they know it? But don't know that just all these obstacles like this to you putting on your defense. So now we got to go and sue the prison, go to the judge, go to the government, write all these letters, blah, 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 right? And that is so, that's pulling focus. From, you know, the core aspect of just working on his defense. And that and costs people. That costs uh, uh, you and, and, and the defense, yeah. Yeah, it's transaction costs. And so what they do is they, they, they spend a lot of time generating crap like that, um, which, you know, 
it's just yeah, I mean it's part of the game, but like you know, um like a lot of the discoveries is garbage. You know, and we we don't actually have things that we should have, like oh, say the Bitcoin, you know, fog wallet address, or the stuff that we're finding out for the first time by reading Andy's book. Right, right. You know, the source code to to chain analysis react, and we're asking for this stuff, and we're subpoenaing for it. Uh, you know, we subpoenaed Michael Garniger and Jonathan Levin to testify, and they basically said, "Oh, we're too important." No, you're not. You know what's important is Roman stilling off liberty. That's what's important, and that's the core, core thing. That's the crux of a federal criminal trial, is whether or not someone's liberty should be taken from them. That's what's important, not their balance sheet. Yeah, you play in all the themes of cypherpunks, basically the theme of anonymity. Because, you know, when you have a new technology, um, what's the best way to make sure that you only take the good applications of the newer technology and, and not the bad ones? And, and theoretically, the response is good regulation and good implementation of regulation. However, cypherpunks in general don't trust government or other forces to overstep their jurisdiction, overstep their power, and use the technology in an abusive way. So therefore, they think that the best defense is anonymity. And that's basically what he was doing here, which was using a, a mixer. That was a little bit his, his objective. There are cases like this. Uh, for example, there's a series on Netflix called Making of a Murder, where you have the the, the, the justice system and, and the whole society trying to take this fellow who appears completely innocent and absolutely make him, make him guilty. All the evidence points that he's innocent, but they absolutely want to put him in jail. And you don't really understand why. And this case is similar. It touches all the themes that, for cypherpunks, justified Bitcoin. I think it's quite common. And unfortunately, I don't think that this is a rare occurrence. I think this is an extreme version of it, but unfortunately, it's something I see all the time. And part of that, I think, is that there's so much money has been put into law enforcement. There's more law enforcement officers than there are actual crimes. And so there's uh, sort of this, for people who are competitive or whatever, they will manufacture crimes, they will stretch the law. Um, you know, you've got this whole culture of press releases at DOJ and they count your number of convictions like a baseball statistic, you know, number of hits, which is perverse because that should, that may be okay in baseball or like at IBM. But when it comes to justice, what you should be counting is justice and whether or not you found the right person. Yeah, the other thing that, you know, look. Bitcoiners will tell you that they find that the, the the science of chain analysis is and the statistical analysis of it is dubious as well. So here you, I, I wouldn't call it science. It's not science. Yeah. You know, chain analysis, the entire clustering methodologies relies on heuristics. Now, heuristics are is the ancient Greek word for guessing. Uh, it's a probability analysis. And in our opinion, and from the, what we've done with our scientific analysis and our experts, we've determined that, you know, the probability is too low. It, it's too low to be used in a situation where they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that something happened. So let me ask you a question. Uh, when you are trying, you as a defense team are trying a case and, uh, you have, uh, somebody with a big gun across the the other side of the, the courtroom from you, meaning the Department of Justice, and they have a lot of money and means, 
and you have they have an entrenched interest to win their case because they spent a lot of money on it and they're the DOJ. So how do you? What's the strategy for winning? Is it just uh, is it just uh, trusting the fact that you have a good case from a factual point of view? Is it uh, is it a jury uh, and you have to convince a jury? It seems like David against Goliath. So what's your, what's the strategy to win these type of things? You tell the truth honestly to the jury through the story of Roman Sterling. Mm-hmm. And what we have on our side that the government can do nothing about is that Roman Sterlinghoff is innocent. And he's going to go up there and he's going to tell the jury his story. And we already put him up on the stand pre-trial at the hearing on whether or not we were going to release his funds. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the U.S. system, generally people don't put the defendant on the stand and there's sort of this prejudice against it. And when we did this, the judge was, you know, made sure, and the judge had done this, I'll always, always do this, made sure that Roman understood that he doesn't have to testify because in the, in the United States, the Fifth Amendment prevents the government from putting the defendant on the stand unless the defendant voluntarily chooses to testify. But we were like, this guy's innocent. Go ahead, ask him, ask him anything you want, right? And the government got nothing from him. And they, you could see them fishing around and what came out was that the government hadn't done any investigation into Roman Sterling off the person. All their investigation is just them sitting at a desk, looking at Chainalysis Reactor, thinking about, you know, how much money you're going to make when, you, you know, Exigent gets thanks in the press release or whatever. They didn't know what his job was in Sweden. They didn't know how he made his money. They didn't know what his salary was. They didn't know who his family or friends were. And he kind of pointed this out. And at one point in his cross-examination, the government just goes, tell us who your friends are. Tell us who your friends are. Okay, this is seven years into a multi-million dollar investigation. And the government is asking questions about the defendant's just basic facts about his life. That tells you, I think, everything you need to know about this investigation. It's all about the fantasies and the profit motive and the quest for status of the investigators and has little really to do with Roman Sterlingoff, who they could really just give a shit about. So, Michael and Tor, why don't you, like, how did you come across this case? Uh, Let's delve into three things. First of all, they're very expensive to take on the Department of Justice, so we're going to put a link in the show notes where people can contribute, because I think you're paying for this out of your own pocket. So you want to tell us a little bit how you came across this case and a little bit your background? Why did people approach you and why did you take on the case? Yeah, so I was uh, out for dinner with some friends in Bushwick at a seafood restaurant called Sea Wolves on Wycock. And I get a call from a friend of mine up in uh, Cape Cod. And I go up there in the summer times. So I got a group of friends up there. And one of the friends in that circle uh, is actually Roman's cousin. So when Roman got arrested, uh, they knew that I worked with Tor and that I practiced computer law. So I got a call from my friends in Cape Cod, like about this case. And do you want to take it over? And you know, they sent me the criminal complaint. And upon first review of the criminal complaint, I was like, holy, like the government's got this guy. You know, they're so the, the language in the criminal complaint comes across as if they really know what they're talking about. So I don't blame the, the grand jury for issuing an indictment. Uh, after looking at it and reviewing it, 
So it becomes clear that a lot of the assertions that they're making the criminal complaint are based upon my experience and training, which is the FBI officer making a statement, right? And, you know, when you see that experience and training, like what is their experience and training? You know, it's not based upon X evidence or Y evidence. You're going to base it upon experience and training. So that was one of our first tip-offs that, okay, maybe there's something to this case. You know, maybe the government doesn't have it right. So Tor and I uh, sits on our desk for a little bit, and eventually we, you know, start to get interested in this case. And I'm kind of pushing it along. I, I, we go down to visit Roman in Northern Neck Regional Jail, and we're thinking that we're going to, you know, talk to him. Maybe he knows somebody. Maybe he knows who really who really created Bitcoin Fog. Uh, if he didn't create it himself, you know. And so we think we're going to cut a deal. And within five minutes of talking to him. We have this realization, like, holy, you, you're innocent. You're innocent, aren't you? He's like, yeah, I'm innocent. You know, I didn't, I didn't do this. I know nothing about this. And, you know, that really makes it very difficult for us because now, now we can't make a plea because in order to make a plea, he would have to lie. Uh, you know, so we, we, he can't make a plea and, you know, we make the decision to fight this to the full extent, take it to trial. And, you know, Roman's on board. He wants to prove his innocence. Their last plea offer, just to interject, was 25 years to life. And, uh, you know, you it's not very attractive. Not a, you might as well just go to trial. You're probably going to get a way better set for that, even if you get uh, a guilty verdict. We've been repping him since. But yeah, the, no, the funding for the case is a huge issue. And that's part of why we're doing this. We did this European tour. Uh, we set up a Geyser Fund so that uh, people can donate with Bitcoin Lightning. Uh, on our firm's webpage, we have both Bitcoin, Monero, as well as Fiat donation uh, pathways for listeners to support Roman's case and support the battle against chain analysis. I'll put it in the show notes, but you want to give right now the address where people can go maybe on the internet and they'll see a, either a, a QR code for Lightning or where they can... If you go to toreckland.com, T-O-R-E-K-E-L-A-N-D.com, right on the landing page, there's a button that says donate to Roman Sterling Off's defense fund. If you click it, you'll get the you know Bitcoin address, the Monero, address the lightning wallet and the fiat and while we're on the subject i'd like to say thank you to everybody because people have been donating people have been donating like five the, big, the bitcoin community is coming out to support roman and it's unjust prosecution it's really great and uh you know the five dollar donations help the twenty dollar ones and even the bigger ones and some people have let some bigger ones and it's a lot it's giving us the freedom to work on this case and i'm um, we're grateful for it, and I, I've told Rowan about it, and I know he's grateful for it. And I want to just make sure that we say thank you on behalf of Rowan because he asked us last time that we were talking to him just to give a shout out to everybody because it makes a difference to him, the support in the community. And if you can't, he, he was going through a rough time a couple of weeks ago, and, and when we started telling him the Bitcoin community is coming together, uh, and galvanizing support behind him, you know, really, really let you in spirits. That's yeah. a big deal when you're sitting in prison. And if you can't donate, that's cool. Talk about the case. You know what I mean? We would love it if people showed up. If you want to, like, at the trial, it's going to be a month, probably a long trial, starting uh, September 14th in Washington, D.C. Federal Court, right across from the National Gallery in the shadow of the Capitol building and a couple blocks down from the United States Constitution. Um, so there's lots of stuff to look at down there, too. The Constitution we will be fully invoking throughout the trial. Okay, thank you very much. And I think, I mean, 
I think we'll stop it there because I, we can go on a lot, but you've, I think you've got all the main points across. And thank you very much, gentlemen. It was inspiring to hear your story. If you enjoyed this episode and you think you learned something new, the best way to show support is by sending in sats over the Lightning Network. If you already have a Lightning wallet, you can contribute directly with a one-off payment by sending sats to my Lightning address, the Swiss Road to Crypto at Fountain.fm. Or you can download a podcasting 2.0 app like Breeze or Fountain that allows you to stream sats as you listen. Finally, if you want to contribute in fiat, you can do that with a credit card or with Apple Pay. There's a link in the show notes for that. Finally, don't hesitate to leave a comment either in the show notes or on social media and don't hesitate to share the episode on social media. Thank you.